We're commanded to love our neighbor, but does that still include Canada? Welcome back to 35 West, a podcast about 35 countries of the Western Hemisphere. My name is Richard Miles at the Center for Strategic International Studies. And joining me again is Christopher Sands from the School of Advanced International Studies at John Hopkins University. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Richard. Uh, so, Chris, back when Canada was our friend, I bet your days were a lot quieter. Uh, you know, you probably knocked off at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, went home. Um, but now that they're a national security threat, your phone's ringing off the hook. So, you know, has the White House created a jobs program for Canadian affairs specialists? Question number one. <laughs> I think it would be uh, it would be nice. to have a lot of students who need uh, who need jobs, but uh, but really, it's quite unusual. For the most part, the Canada-U.S. relationship is one where uh, there are boundaries. We we have disagreements, but we work within you know within the lines and. You can often resolve issues with technical expertise without a great deal of Canada expertise, simply because the Canadians who know the Americans so well will sort of cover for you. They'll help you understand that little bit about Canada that's quirky that you need to know so that we can get things back on track. Where we are now, however, is that so many of those fundamental things about Canada-U.S. relations are unknown, I think, to the president, but also to quite a few Americans, that we've wandered into a conflict and the parameters, the the sort of boundaries of that conflict are uh, either non-existent or, or unknown. So, Chris, help us put this in context. Has has there been a, a blow up like this? And, and for those few listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, I'm talking about the blow up at the G7 meeting um, uh, last week in which uh, Donald Trump um, accused Justin Trudeau of betraying him and a few other intemperate remarks from a few other White House advisors. But has there been something like this, let's say, in the in the post-war period? And, and by war, I mean World War II, not War of 1812, just to, <laughs> just to clarify. Yes, in Washington, we're always sort of sensitive on the War of 1812. It, it kind of burned a few things here. Uh, I think what's interesting is we really are pushing the frontiers of what people at CSIS for a long time have called digital diplomacy. In the past, leaders might have vented about each other or even insulted each other away from cameras, away from recording devices. We have a couple of examples in Canada-U.S. relations. In particular, John Diefenbaker was a conservative prime minister in the 50s of Canada, uh, had a great relationship with Dwight Eisenhower, but had a terrible relationship with John Kennedy. And uh, they had harsh words for each other, but did not actually directly bring that into the public. Similarly, um, Lester Pearson came to Temple University outside Philadelphia in the 1960s and criticized the conduct of the Vietnam War, which led to harsh words with Lyndon Johnson. And Richard Nixon and Pierre Trudeau, the father of the current prime minister, Justin Trudeau, uh, had very dark things to say about each other. They were both smart men, but uh, prickly. And uh, what we know about those conflicts, we learned from historians who pieced things together. We didn't see that live. And I think that's the challenge, that this back and forth between Trump and Trudeau has been so public and um, and so hot. Uh, President Trump uh, and some of his advisors have used very intemperate language. And the reason you normally don't do that in diplomacy is that you can wound the ego of the other leader. All leaders have egos. So far, Justin Trudeau has taken that calmly and has retained his Canadian good manners all the way through. But it puts a lot of pressure on him not to look 
uh, weak in front of the Americans. Canadians know that they're smaller than the United States as a country and, and in other ways. But no one likes to see their leader humiliated. And the more that Trump publicly berates Justin Trudeau, the harder it is for Trudeau to find room to compromise with the United States on some of the issues that do divide us. Um, Chris, I was reading a, a piece this morning, I think it was in Politico, and it was written by, uh, I think uh, it was Canadian, a, a young guy. And his argument was basically that um, that Canada, uh, I think he said, wrote that uh, Canada is, is profoundly anti-American. What he meant by that was from the or- the origin stories of the country are, right? You know, they're colon- fellow colonists and they left because they didn't agree with the creation of the United States. Um, and uh, and that often Canadian identity, self-identity, is defined as who they are not. Uh, that that is, we are not Americans, and we're the the nicer, kinder version of that. Is, is there anything to that? Is there is there belie- beneath this sort of surface of you know we're just like each other, we speak the same language? Is there a um, a resentment or a, you know some sort of um, I hate to say ideological, but kind of um, an identifying factor that Canadians, when they look at Americans, go, we are so not like you. <laughs> well, we both Canada and the United States were part of uh, a larger entity known as British North America for a period of time. And the 13 colonies to the south rebelled in the famous American Revolution, and the colonies to the north did not. So from the beginning, we had uh, a challenge, which was because we had taken on a revolutionary identity and they had not, there was an, a, a natural contradistinction between us. The second challenge, which we also both shared, was to build a sense of, of common nationhood across a very geographically diverse, large continental-sized country. And over the years, particularly because technology made communication and travel so difficult, Canadians tended to have strong regional or, or sometimes provincial identities that were closely connected to the regional identities of the people immediately to the south. So New Englanders and Atlantic Canadians often shared a lot. Uh, Midwesterners and Ontarians, for example, would share a lot. And on the prairies, but even Washington State and British Columbia, there were these kind of common identities. And to push back against that fragmentation, both countries also developed national narratives. And in Canada, you have two sort of uh, prevailing and uh, intention pulls. One is the pull towards being a proud Canadian, wrapping yourself in the flag, thinking of all the great things from healthcare to peacekeeping in the military and other things that are common to all Canadians. But the dark side of that is to push back against the United States. For the entirety of Canadian history, Canadians from one side of the country to the other might not know each other well, but they all knew the Americans. So they would often define themselves, and not in always negative way, just saying, well, we're like Americans but different in this way. And it's become a habit. At times like this, when the Canadian and American governments are are at loggerheads, you always have a sort of return for some Canadians to that negative definition. In a way, what Donald Trump has has done by calling out Justin Trudeau is defined his own sense of nationhood. Who is us? Us is the United States of America. You heard this in his inaugural address, a, a kind of patriotism that knows no bias, no racism, no favor, but puts America first. And that always will bring out in Canadians, uh, first, the clear and sometimes uncomfortable sense that they're not us, that they are them. And then secondly, a quest for a who is us and what do we rally around? And the positive and the negative aspects of Canadian nationalism will then come forward. 
So we're we're recording this a little, uh, you know, more than a week or, or so uh, after the G7. And I know that initially, um, and, and maybe still to this day, Trudeau got very strong support to rally around the prime minister, even from opposite parties. Has there been any uh, second thoughts or blowback to his press conference, which was actually, you know, pretty mild? I mean, uh, but is there anyone now saying, well, gosh, mm, that wasn't such a good idea because, uh, you know, it's never really a good idea to provoke the United States, even even if Canada is not in the wrong? I, I think this is an interesting point. So uh, the First, the prime minister has handled this in a very Canadian way, which is to be firm, but at the same time to be polite. And I think that more than anything else has won him support from Canadians. It's also true that in the time since um, Donald Trump was elected and, and took over the, in the United States, Justin Trudeau has had a very public commitment to good relations with the United States and good relations with this White House, sending down his chief of staff and other officials to develop personal relationships with uh, Trump administration, senior White House personnel and, and others in the administration. That effort has had broad support from Canadians because they respect that whoever runs the United States, there really isn't a, a value in having good relations. But... After 500 days of American greatness, I think the White House is calling it, the challenge for, for the Trudeau government is what do they have to show for their policy of goodwill? Um, they're being hit with softwood lumber tariffs. They're facing uh, a NAFTA renegotiation that upends the entire basis of the relationship. They're now facing steel and aluminum tariffs and are threatened by a uh, an investigation that would argue for 25% tariffs on the auto industry, which is uh, the first or second largest component of our bilateral trade. So not only have they not gotten good things, but they've only gotten bad things. And I think that has led the Trudeau government to recalibrate and push back just a little bit, not necessarily to be belligerent, but to make sure that Canadians retain confidence that their government is not wimping out in front of Donald Trump. And I think this is sort of the interesting question going forward. Where does that escalation. And it appears that Donald Trump has reacted very personally and emotionally to that uh, ramping up of Canadian uh, pushback. But now that he's pushed back even harder, where does Canada go? From a, just a purely narrow political self-interest on Justin Trudeau's part, this actually does him some good, right? I mean, he he's not doing terribly well in the polls, I understand, Canadian domestic polls. Uh, he had a a disastrous trip to India in which he tried to go full Bollywood and didn't work out so well. And, you know, kind of perceived as sort of this, this boyish, um, you know, lightweight. So this is working out f well for him from a purely political standpoint. From a purely political standpoint, I would agree. There are a couple other things I would mention. The, the prime minister was involved in resolving a pipeline dispute um, out west, a pipeline that would go from Alberta through British Columbia, in which the Alberta government was pro, the British Columbia, new British Columbia government was opposed. And the prime minister saw fit to resolve that by purchasing the pipeline uh, for three and a half billion dollars U.S. from the U.S. owner of the pipeline, Kinder Morgan of Texas. Um, that's a very expensive way to buy peace, and it really hasn't satisfied anyone. So you have all these issues that were making his government look less and less popular. Uh, having the rally around the flag, rally around the prime minister effect of Trump's attacks has been very good for him politically. 
But interestingly, in the same way that many Americans rallied around George W. Bush after the 9-11 attacks, um, this can be a fleeting thing. And right now, I think the Canadian opposition is trying to figure out how and when do we go back to criticizing this government. And there are a couple of things that are likely going to be flashpoints. One, of course, is um, the prime minister's commitment to impose a carbon tax on all provinces starting on January 1, 2019. I think that'll be a big issue. And the other will be uh, the NAFTA talks. And if the NAFTA talks, as we've heard from the White House and USTR, um, are potentially going to be split with a focus on Mexico first and Canada, kept waiting uh, for a bilateral discussion sometime later, those those kinds of moments will cause a serious reevaluation of Trudeau once again. And that moment of rallying around him might might come uh, apart. And I think that's the challenge for, for Trudeau to figure out how to, how to capitalize on this moment and keep Canadians united for as long as possible. So he may want to keep poking Trump in the eye that, just to get that momentary boost, but... Not not something you'd advise. Yeah, no. I, so the, something interesting, and I've been following Canada's relations for a while, and I, I think that many Canadians have a sort of popular, I don't want to call it a fantasy, but it is sort of a fantasy. It's a sort of um, uh, scenario, I guess, in which Canada, uh, righteous and firm, stands up to the United States and, and comes out ahead. And that that's been around forever. I think it was around uh, as far back as uh, really the beginning of Canada in Confederation 1867. It's unrealistic um, and I think always has the potential to backfire. There's a, a sort of popular movement right now among Canadians to consider boycotting American products or boycotting American tourism, anything to try to send a message to the U.S. of how upset ordinary Canadians are. The problem is the only thing worse when you're feeling helpless uh, than simply feeling helpless is advertising how helpless you really are. And for so many products, they're not the product of the U.S. or Canada. They're, they're mixed. They're the product of multiple countries. So identifying what you would boycott and actually making that boycott hurt, um, Canadians often will come to the 10 to 1 ratio where uh, there are 10 times as many Americans as Canadians. But if you look at GDP, U.S. GDP is closer to 18, 19 trillion dollars and Canada's is just a little bit over one. So it's actually closer to a one to 20 relationship. Um, so dreams of a fight in which Canada comes out ahead are, are unrealistic, but they may lead first Canadians uh, to have reckless hopes for, for how to manage this tension with Donald Trump. And also pressure on the government to uh, to act in ways that I think might might feel good for about an hour, but would be bad for the relationship as a whole. So, how do Trudeau and Trump get back to square one? Who who are sort of the main intermediaries here? Is it is it uh, the foreign secretaries, or um, is it through Jared Kushner? What's where is the conversation occurring right now to try to I'm presumably get this back on track? What's interesting the the Canadius relationship. Uh, is like an iceberg. So much of it goes on below the surface, and that's the bulk of the relationship. And that part of the relationship is humming along as, as it always did. It's just the president and the prime minister who are having this very personal and very intense conflict. Um, it's in everyone's interest for them to move beyond that conflict as quickly as possible. And you're starting to see some outreach. Steve Nuchin, our Treasury Secretary of the United States, has been reaching out to Bill Morneau, his counterpart, uh, trying to talk about trade and the economy and, and managing in the short run. Remember that Canada, like Mexico, has seen its the value of its currency fall quite precipitously in the midst of all this tension. And that has the perverse effect, if you're Donald Trump, of making Canadian exports even cheaper, uh, which is not going to help with the trade balance. That said, the 
Treasury Secretary is an old-fashioned free trader, and he's the kind of American that Canadians are used to dealing with. And uh, so they're finding some way to have that conversation. The problem is that Secretary Mnuchin was the sort of leading peace candidate <laughs> reaching out to China and had the rug pulled out from under him when he came back from China as we took on much more aggressive stance. So the question about Steve Mnuchin, not about him personally, but is is whether he'll be the right bridge. Uh, Secretary Pompeo at State has also been reaching out to um, Christia Freeland, the Canadian foreign minister. There are a number of issues on which we do agree, uh, particularly with regard to Ukraine and Eastern Europe and, and to some extent the Middle East. Um, Canada's been, unlike the Europeans, more or less on side for Iran sanctions and their return. So all of that's very positive. It's also um, the case that Christia Freeland volunteered to host a summit of North Korean uh, sort of countries concerned with the North Korean trajectory in Vancouver prior to uh, the Singapore summit. So there, she has a bit more to play in terms of how Canada can help. So that's been very helpful. Um, on the personal relationship side, the prime minister has really reached out in the past to Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, both of whom are quite busy with with different things. Um, we could perhaps use a bit more, uh, a few more people to step forward on the relationship. Remember that Robert Lighthizer, uh, who's managing the trade file, has a really difficult time. Um, he, he is the chief trade negotiator. He's been dealing with Christia Freeland primarily as opposed to Canada's trade minister. Uh, but he's got – and he may get to be good cop for a week or two here, but he has a bad cop role ultimately. And so Canada could use more friends. So, you know, Chris, you've been on the, the show a number of times, and each time we've always talked about NAFTA. And if I recall correctly, I have to be honest, our, our scenarios are really sort of uh, NAFTA as it is, new NAFTA, or NAFTA goes away. I think what I certainly didn't anticipate is sort of the liberal use of the Section 232 kind of, uh, you know, national security grounds for keeping out uh, imports, the theory being that, well, gosh, if uh, we have no steel industry, then we're disadvantaged, uh, et cetera, if, like, if we have no auto industry and, and so on. And that has now been used against Canada and Mexico and other countries. Um, so now the, the idea of an ex extended trade spat really sort of is occurring outside of the, the NAFTA negotiations. If that continues, what are the worst pain points for Canada and the U.S. on, on both sides of the border? And, and, and in other words, what, what sectors or industries are going to be hit the hardest um, what provinces, what states are we going to see suffering, you know, right away or at least pretty soon? Well, um, it's, a, it's a short list. Steel and aluminum and the auto industry um, are Ontario and Quebec. Quebec doesn't do automotive but does do aerospace but also um, some buses and other, other products. Aluminum is a big product uh, for uh, for Quebec because they have both the bauxite and hydroelectricity, which is tends to be the, the magic combination for putting together aluminum. Um, but that's tied to the auto industry as well because the majority of Quebec's aluminum is sold to the auto industry as part of lightweighting vehicles to help them meet uh, fuel economy standards. Uh, Ontario, though, where the bulk of the North American auto industry is or the bulk of the Canadians component of the North American auto industry will be particularly hard hit. The uncertainty has already made it difficult for the companies to, to determine where they're going to invest going down the road. And I think in this regard, one of the interesting X factors is the election in Ontario of a conservative premier, uh, Doug Ford, who some of your listeners will remember Rob Ford, his uh, cocaine-addicted uh, uh, brother, who was mayor of Toronto for a time. Doug Ford is very similar in personality, but not 
not on the drug front, uh, by which I mean he's a city politician. He's somebody who fights for his constituents and is more pragmatic than um, ideological, which is good and bad. I think in this particular case, the fact that he's a conservative, the fact that his province is right in the crosshairs of these big escalated disputes, will make him the natural spokesperson for people who are unhappy with the direction the Canadian government has taken. I think it's hard to fault the strategy of the Trudeau government, but it, it, it comes a point where you have to see results. And I think some Canadians will look, uh, look for alternatives. And Doug Ford could be the sort of attack dog for conservative politicians, particularly at the federal level, even though he's separated from them. They're not the same party technically. Um, you, could see, you could see Doug Ford making Justin Trudeau's life quite miserable and sowing more doubt in his management of the Canada U.S. file, which could lead to a dramatic change in the Canadian side. Um, something else, though, that I think uh, perhaps the, the White House and the U U.S. side has underestimated is that while Canada now has fixed election dates, and so we're expecting a Canadian federal election in October of 2019, it also retains the ability that parliamentary systems have to either have the government fall or to have the government call a snap election. I think that many of the U.S. negotiators are assuming that they'll focus on Mexico now because Mexico has an election, obviously, in a couple of weeks, and that they can deal with Canada next year when it's up against a federal election and might be, therefore, more vulnerable and willing to concede things to keep relations on a good tack. I would not be surprised to see this fall, uh, possibly early next year, Justin Trudeau call a snap election in order to basically argue, I'm dealing with an unprecedented crisis in Canada's relations. I need a strong mandate to be able to come and deal with the Trump administration. Um, and I think he would win a sizable majority. That would give him much more room to maneuver going down the road and neutralize the, the danger of Doug Ford, who, to, to be fair, I, I said he could be a tough attack dog. He and the conservative opposition have been uniformly supportive of Trudeau, uh, trying to create a united front in Canada. That, that magic moment of unity might be just the thing for Trudeau to capitalize on to give himself more room to maneuver dealing with Trump going right, forward. Because at some point, politics returns to politics. Yeah. It's all about politics. And I, I think this is maybe if I can make a, a bit more of a cosmic observation. The Trump administration is using Section 232 of the 1962 Trade Act to invoke national security as a justification for a deviation from our WTO commitments and, and our other commitments to other countries so that we can engage in a, in a bit of protectionism. I understand that working on two levels. One is uh, the level of the U.S. being so open, if it wants to negotiate with traditional trade partners and eliminate their remaining protectionism, we we don't have much to offer in exchange for giving up those cherished protections that our allies have. And so the president's strategy is to say, give up those protections or we're going to do something bad to you, which is a very negative approach to the negotiations. The second thing, of course, is the use of national security. Typically, if the U.S. does take a protectionist step, there's a normal investigation. And the accusation is that the other side has done something wrong, subsidy or manipulation of the market. From that, you then uh, develop a case and argue that the level of injury is X and there we get a countervailing duty. The national security uh, justification is much less technical. The president's assertion that the national security of the United States is at stake is enough, usually, to get this to go through. We've not seen much appetite in U.S. courts for countermanding that. We have not seen the international trade system, where there's a carve-out for national security, which is rarely invoked, 
in the WTO agreements because of the United States. And I think most WTO countries are very worried about being asked to put parameters on the U.S. or any country invoking uh, protection in the names of national security because how, how can foreigners determine what's true national security interest? But that being said, if the U.S. uses that here, China, Russia, other countries certainly will do the same and the, the core of the international system could fall apart. In, in a way... That's the danger. I think President Trump chose this method because he felt it was the easiest expedient and it was a threat that he could make good on with very little likelihood that he'd get get pulled back by Congress or anyone else. So the threat's taken seriously by the allies, but just as Justin Trudeau said, it's somewhat insulting to be called uh, you know, a national security threat when you're a NATO partner, a NORAD partner, you've been fighting with the U.S. Um, on the same side as the U.S. for, for many years. And it exposes, coming back to your observation, I think the most fundamental flaw in the use of 232, which is that U.S. allies are democracies. Uh, we don't have a lot of autocratic allies that we're close to, and that's a good thing. I mean, generally, we like our allies, but they have domestic politics. And whether it's Abe in Japan or Macron or Merkel in Europe or uh, Justin Trudeau, they all have to be able to win re-election, which means that they have to work with the United States States. They'll generally do well if they do, but if they're beat up by the United States, um, they won't do well. And what at the G7 meeting in Charlevoix, Charlevoix, the leaders were trying to say uh, to Donald Trump is, let us work with you. We want to work with you. If you've got a legitimate beef, let us help you solve it, because to the extent that we are working with you, our electoral prospects are boosted back home. So we want to do this. But to the extent that you push us on the outside, don't treat us like allies, force us to constantly litigate every trade issue, that treatment will tend to empower our opposition. And it's not a conservative liberal thing. It's whoever's out of power will say, this is not the way we like to see things managed. And so let's throw the bums out and we'll take a crack at it. It, But it becomes, unfortunately, uh, a negative cycle. It's very hard for the U.S. to escape. So I think in the short run, Donald Trump's strategy makes sense. It, It there's, there's a logic to it, but the long-range consequences haven't been taken on board. And Justin Trudeau is not the only leader who may find himself pushed first to extreme measures and secondly out of office uh, if Trump persists in this way of dealing with our, our best friends around the world. So talking about long-range consequences, one of the things we heard um, out of Mexico early on in the NAFTA renegotiations and, and probably uh, – out of Canada as well, I just wasn't tracking it, was this idea that, well, you know, we don't, um, we can, Mexico is saying we can get our soybeans and our corn from other countries. Uh, uh, United States is not the only place in the world that sells those, and we'll just source them from somewhere else. The problem is you, once you start doing the math, the additional transportation costs and so on, it really wasn't a feasible option. It was a theoretical option. Um, it, our voices in Canada saying the same thing. I assume that they are, right? That they Canadian timber should get sold somewhere else and Canadian oil should get sold. Is that realistic or is that just sort of... Well, it's unrealistic in two ways, but it's certainly understandable. The first way in which it's unrealistic is that governments don't make these decisions. Ultimately, it's businesses and the businesses look at the bottom line. And I think there are parts for which you could source elsewhere. Uh, and I think within reason that you'll see some of that. Um, and there are products for which that's that's not feasible. 
Governments can, however, open doors. And what the Canadian government has done quite proactively is join the Trans-Pacific Partnership 11, everybody but the U.S., in trying to uh, liberalize across uh, a number of countries. It's become an observer within the Pacific Alliance, which is important for, for the Western Hemisphere, and is initiating this year uh, talks with Mercosur about uh, opening up uh, trade relations. There's also some discussion of opening up uh, bilateral agreement with ASEAN, which is the first step to being part of the RCEP or uh, sort of alternative to uh, to the TPP, where India and China and Japan are all participants. So they're looking for those options. They also uh, are now in the provisional application of the CETA, which is their agreement with Europe. So the governments are trying to create options. They're encouraging everyone to look elsewhere for things like softwood lumber, which China needs to build houses just like the U.S. needs to build houses. There may be some progress on that front uh, for certain products. I think this is one of the reasons on dairy that the Canadians have found some hope in TPP. Uh, dairy products which could go, for example, to Japan now because of the liberalization. Um, Canada's supply management doesn't give them a lot to export. Uh, their biggest risk is imports, but they, they may choose to move up the value chain, export cheeses and so on uh, and some other uh, dairy products. But at the end of the day, um, the, the, the second uh, part of this comes in, which is that it isn't Canadians trading with the American government. It's Canadians trading with their traditional um, suppliers and, and customers. And it, there'll be a lot of conversations within supply chains about how they can reorient products to avoid the application of Trump tariffs. Um, what I think many ordinary uh, and many ordinary citizens of Canada, U.S., forget is that a tariff is a tax, and it's a tax that's ultimately paid by the consumer of those goods. And while the Trump administration is trying to protect American jobs, uh, it will do so in a way with tariffs that raise prices for American consumers, and that will price also uh, some American products out of reach for even our foreign uh, friends who won't be able to buy, say, the best ball bearings in the world from an American plant because uh, they've been priced out. And I mentioned earlier the currency effects. The Canadian dollar has fallen, the Mexican peso has fallen. So where an integrated supply chain is manufacturing, for example, a ball bearing, um, those ball bearings are cheaper for Americans to buy now than they were before because of the currency effect of the trade uncertainty. So I, what I worry about is that the announcement of tariffs and the bravado from Trump sounds like it's really working. We will see over time uh, a real erosion of American competitiveness on the price point, which will lead supply chains to shift away from the U.S. Um, and that has been a core source of our competitiveness in, in the global economy. Um, right now, low unemployment, great growth. Trump looks like he's on top of the world and that his policies are working. But on trade, uh, all of the undertow effects are there. We can see them already over time and possibly in time for his re-election bid to be affected by the bad news. The U.S. is putting itself in a position where it, it may lose competitiveness and reverse some of the gains that we've had so far. Well, Chris, I know I could talk dairy supply chains all day long, but I, I also know probably— Until the, the cows come the, home. Until the cows come <laughs> but I also know that the book offers and movie offers are coming in— Left and right, and you're 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 a busy guy, and you can't spend time talking to dairy with me and my podcast. But <laughs> thanks very much for joining me again, Chris. Uh, I know I'll have you back again. Hopefully uh, by then we'll have settled this uh, trade dispute, and we'll be talking about you know you know how the uh, the continent can grow together. But thanks very much. Absolutely. 
All right, Chris Sands has left the building, and I think we're done uh, talking about Canada for the week, at least. Um, we have back with us Sarah Baumunk, who's going to bring us the latest installment of Big Little News. Welcome back, Sarah. Thank you. So we're going to talk about World Cup today, and specifically about a very interesting interactive graphic that the Wall Street Journal published. Was it this morning, Sarah? Yes. Or, okay. So what is this? What did they do? What, what can you do uh, with this World Cup graphic? Yeah. So um, the World Cup is upon us, and the U.S. men's team, unfortunately, is not in it. Um, so the Wall Street Journal came up with this interactive where we can um, determine how American all the other countries are that are currently in the World Cup, um, and then we can figure out who we should be rooting for in any given match. So what does that mean, how American they are? How, how do you determine if a country, another country is like us? Yeah, so they use a number of different indicators to figure out which countries are most like us, anything from military spending and employment rates to apple eating and um, beer drinking and how much TV they're watching. So there are actually statistics on how many apples each country eats? There are. There's um, surprisingly enough. They have determined how many daily calories per person people are eating in all the different countries. And beer swilling, same thing. There's data on beer consumption. Absolutely. I'm not exactly sure how honest people are when they fill okay. that one. but. So, okay. So that means you take a country, you plug in a few variables like, uh, you know, how much they love McDonald's and say their unemployment rate. And then you, what, how does it work? There's a score that's generated or what happens? Yeah. So they have um, a different infographic for each of the matchups in the World Cup. So you can pick which indicators are most important to you. And it'll tell you based off of that between those two countries, which one you should be rooting for. Okay. I see. So since we're not in the tournament, this is a proxy, and so the rooting for the United States, we root for a company or another country. So, all right. So, this is the 35 West, Western Hemisphere. Uh, what Western Hemisphere countries are we most like, and which ones should we root for in the World Cup? Well, we actually, surprisingly enough, Argentina was one of the top ones. It was rated as the fifth most similar country to the United States. Um, and Mexico came in with the 14th most similar to the Interesting. United States. So we're more like Argentina than Mexico. We are. Are there any other Latin American countries or Western Hemisphere countries that, that we need to be uh, on their side? Well, I think if we're most interested in... Uh, the beer drinking, I think we should definitely be rooting for Brazil. They're the closest to They're us, closest although uh, farthest behind. But, um, yeah, you know, all of the Latin American countries tend to have really high patriotism rates, which was uh, determined by the number of words in their national anthem. So if we're going based off of that, I think any Latin American country is going to be a winner for us. So, Sarah, do we have any idea why the Wall Street Journal did this? Or are they trying to get Americans who are interested in watching soccer watching soccer based on beer drinking rates. Yeah, I think they're just excited. They're just trying to get us more involved. I think uh, the, during the last World Cup, they created um, a kind of hierarchy for everything other than soccer. So you could determine who would win the World Cup based off of things like um, the number of traffic-related deaths and all these things in the country. So I think they're trying to make it more applicable to uh, the United States, which has tended to lag in its uh, World Cup watching. So this is what happens when you let wonks rule the world. They'll sort of they'll, they'll ruin everything, right, with data. And exactly. So anyway. Well, Sarah, thanks very much. Uh, fascinating article. If you're interested, uh, go to the Wall Street Journal, view their soccer interactive, and have fun.